Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira, and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry. This has to have happened for a reason. I saved one life. Does it stop there, or do I go on? Maybe this is what I've been waiting for. Maybe I'm finally part of something bigger. That quote is Kamala Khan. Hmm. There's a reason that I'm bringing her up. We'll get to that later. I haven't read Miss Marvel in a while. Is it from one of the recent issues, or... Uh... First issue. Oh, I don't remember it. Sorry. Anyway, this podcast is brought to you by the fine folks at Seaport, the best online and undershelf source for comic books, news, reviews, and critique. Buy their books, read their articles, and watch their movies. For example, Bright Eyes Ape City, Examining the Planet of the Apes Mythos, was recently published. It's edited by Rich Handley and Joseph S. Baranato, and it discusses the various eight films of the Monkey Planet series, I guess. And the comics. Based, of course, on the French novels. And the comics. It's a very uh, ape-tastic look at this long-running franchise, and uh, worth a look. Now, uh, before we go on to the news and the discussion, uh, I have some sad news for you and the listeners. This is the very last episode of the Smorgasbord, as you know it, because you see, a C-Court market research team had discovered that podcast listeners just aren't interested in open quote, diversity, close quote, broadcasters. Mm. And because I'm a Jewish man, um, clean your house for Passover, by the way, if you haven't already, uh, uh, they'll have to reboot the show. They'll have to bring in Silver Age Tom, whose last name is uh, Smith, I assume. And they'll redo it with number one. So Smorgasbord Revelation, coming soon. Yes, we are going to be very bland and predictable and boring. So here we go. I... Long-time listeners are probably expecting me to go on a rant here directed at David Gabriel, Senior Vice President of Dumb Statements at Marvel, who said the following at a recent ICV2 retailer summit, and I quote, What we heard was that people didn't want any more diversity. They didn't want female characters out there. That's what we heard, whether we believe that or not. I don't know that that's really true, but that's what we saw in sales. We saw the sales of any character that was diverse, any character that was new, our female characters, anything that was not a core Marvel character, people were turning their nose up against. End quote. Note the use of the term core. I'll get back to that. Now, naturally, like any spineless corporate drone faced with immediate backlash, Gabriel immediately backpedaled and tried to assure everyone that Marvel was, and I quote, getting both sides of the story, while at the same time saying that their primary concern is that we don't lose focus of our core heroes. This, of course, only confirmed what people were freaking out with to begin with, which is that they get the feeling Marvel's about to push the pendulum in the other direction again and reset all their progress. Now, since this summit, I have been cooking something up. I've kept the cauldron on a low fire this week, stirring under the light of a full moon. And I'm going to do something a little different this time, Tom. I'm going to help Marvel. I'm going to help Marvel because I used to be a fan of Marvel when I was a kid. And Marvel brought me back into comics after I stepped away for a couple of years. And I do want to help them. I do want to see them succeed. So, Mr. Gabriel, I've made a list. I've checked it twice. A list of things that are perhaps, perhaps, more responsible for Marvel's current troubles than women in diversity. 
Now I'm going to try. I promised Tom that I would not let Zoraya Montenegro come back and scream her way to an encore. So I'm not going to do that. Here is the list in no particular order, right? Just random points, possible sources of trouble for Marvel. Number one, Inhumans. We don't care. Warren Ellis couldn't make us care. Charles Soleil couldn't make us care. Marvel pushed to full oversaturation, balls to the wall, something that nobody asked for and nobody wanted. In doing so, they undermined the X-Men, which were, I'll remind our listeners as if they don't know, one of the most dominant and best-selling franchises that Marvel had ever had. They cut down the number of books, they assigned B-list talent like Cullen Bunn and Mark Guggenheim, who, for all their supposed consistency, have never been top sellers. Well, and Jeff Lemire, to be fair. Jeff Lemire's gone, though. Well, and he, yeah. Yeah, you know, Jeff Lemire also does not have... He's an excellent writer, but his superhero work specifically was never a chart topper, right? Yes, yes. So... They allowed this line to completely fall apart while communicating to the readers very clearly that the Inhumans were meant to take their place. When that didn't happen, now they're trying to unring the bell with Resurrexian, and it's not going to work, right? No, so, because people can spell. Of course. So, number one, Inhumans. We don't care. Number two, hip-hop covers. Marvel has exactly three black people working for them right now. There's Tanahisi Coates. Roxanne Gay, and David Walker. Two of those three are short-term hires because, quite frankly, they've got better things to do with their time, right? Whatever Marvel's intentions may have been, the optics here with these hip-hop covers that they are continuing to do is that they picked up something that does not belong to them and used it to squeeze a few extra bucks out of existing readers. That is one way that they believe they have followed quote-unquote diversity that's not it number three crossovers here are some numbers for you in june 2017 the most recent previews we have secret empire with four spin-off miniseries and 11 tie-in issues we have edge of venomverse setting up and i quote the epic venom event of 2017 we have monsters unleashed and we have Weapons of Mutant Destruction, a Hulk Weapon X crossover, because I was dying for those two to meet. Gabriel is also on record saying that Marvel's immediate plan for the future is to use more events to prop up subsequent storylines, noting that uh, Generations, the event that's supposed to start in September, is being launched specifically to prop up the sales of the end of Secret Empire. So this is only going to get worse. And here's the problem. This is the thing that I don't think Marvel have quite figured out. Let's say, hypothetically speaking, right? You and I, Tom, are average readers. Let's, well, let's we're say... We're a bit more in the obsessed, I'd say, than the average reader. Stipulated. I'll go with that. But let's say for the sake of argument, right? That neither of us are particularly interested in, shall we say, a Venom event. What that means is that I'm not buying any of the Venom event books. So instead of turning me off one comic, Marvel is effectively turning me off five. Do you see how that works? If I don't care about the event, I don't care about the tie-ins either. And on top of that, 
Crossovers are only a viable sales tactic if you can convince your readers to buy all of the respective parts. As soon as you start upping the frequency to the point that no status quo can assert itself for more than a couple of months before the next event shows up, what's the point? Again, Marvel is working against itself. They're sabotaging their own message by communicating that these stories, these big 20, 30, 40, 50 part crossovers don't matter because something new is already being planned. On a related point, something that you've brought up several times, Tom, and I always agree with you on this point, double shipping the books that are four to five dollars with no real effort. To- Te- Sorry? Spider-Man 25, which came out, I think, two weeks ago, mm-hmm. was a ten dollar comic. Oh, I'll bet it was. It, it, a ten dollar sure. comic, obviously larger than large and I think almost a hundred pages, but still, Marvel is the one company that's always testing the waters to see How can we gouge them further? How can we raise the price? Exactly. And to be blunt, no offense to anyone currently working at Marvel, but they're not exactly bursting with new talent after Gillen, Hickman, and Remander left. They haven't found people to, like, new people to take their places. So who exactly are these $10 books being written by and drawn by that they are being sold to us on that merit. Why? Well, if, if I if I may sure. stumble a bit from that, uh, because one of the things that we've talked about uh, online before the recording and one of the burning things that I think, I think it was Alonzo who said, that they don't have anything to promote their artists with. Yeah. And that artists don't no longer sell comics. And Declan Shelby, who up until recently worked for Marvel, right? Yeah. He did Moon Knight with Ellis, and then he did, I think, covers one of their books. Probably. He was furious with it, and rightly so, because as he said, as other people online said, as I, as I will add and requote and retweet and whatever, if you can't sell a Chris Somney book, if you can tell people, hey, here's one of the greatest sequential artist of his generation working for us doing action comics that's not that's not the market's problem that's you you're just terrible at promoting half of what makes your books work well there's that and there's also that even when they do have artists who are worth you know who are worth their weight in gold so to speak in terms of what they do for these books the pairing of great artists and great writers is a rarity in marvel right You could have the prettiest book in the world with script that actively make you embarrassed. And those books won't sell either. You can't just market only on an artist. You have to have a good writer and a good artist working together. And we'll see some examples of that when we talk about today's reviews. But what Marvel tend to do, first of all, they they shuffle. Well, I'll get to that later. But they have not been treating their artists right at all. No. Point number five. And I have to attribute this to Jay Edidin because he pointed it out in a recent episode of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men. Marvel's supposed moves towards diversity in the last couple of years have come with caveats. Laura Kinney, right, X-23, was not Wolverine for two fucking minutes before Old Man Logan became a fixture in the Marvel Universe. And as of now, as of April 2017, he's in more books than she is. 
So they went ahead and paid lip service to the idea that this girl was going to take Wolverine's place, that she was the legacy inheritor of that title, and immediately undermined it by throwing another Wolverine into the mix, who is on all of these books that she is not on, because you don't need two Wolverines, right? We see this with Jane Foster, right? Jane Foster is supposed to be Thor, but... The real Thor, the quote-unquote real Thor, Odin's son, unworthy, whatever uh, Jason Aaron is calling him to differentiate him, is still running around out there having adventures. Sam Wilson is Captain America, but who's at the center of this Nazi controversy that everybody's talking about? Steve Rogers, right? And again, to put the light to what Alonzo and Gabriel were saying, the sales difference between Captain America, Sam Wilson, and Captain America, Steve Rogers... As, as I recall, about 4,000 copies. And that's when Sam Wilson has four issues more than Steve Rogers. So, usual downward trend. There is no difference. No. Jane Foster's... The two Captain America books by Nick Spencer sells almost exactly the same. So, it's not about the diverse characters. In fact... Uh... If you look at the sales charts, and why wouldn't you if you want to be informed, right? Uh, Jane Foster's Thor is selling higher than Thor God of Thunder did. So, there's that too. But this is Marvel trying to have it both ways, right? They have been creating this illusion of appealing towards a larger percentage of people and different kinds of people and different types of stories. But at the same time, they have kept the fallbacks, right? The default characters so blatantly in position that we know it's all smoke and mirrors. If they don't commit, why should we? Right? And we're still seeing that now. Looking at the latest solicitations, Iceman is getting an ongoing, right? Huzzah! Solo book with a gay lead. Of course, no one has seen Wiccan and Hulkling or North Star or Angela or Anol or Richter and Shatterstar lately, but I am sure that this will be the time they won't lose interest and bury the character when the hype fades. Right? Which we have seen before. This is why, you know, these are all of Marvel's sins coming back to roost. You remember, they made a big deal out of North Star's wedding. They put him on the front cover, all the publicity, the first gay wedding, blah, 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 blah. According to Marvel's own wiki, the last time anybody's even seen North Star was November 2015. There's your diversity, right? You got the sales spike, and then you're done. Goodbye. They don't actually have any plan for these characters. Speaking of lack of plans, number six, why, Tom, why is Marvel publishing a new Cable book? I know James Robinson deserves work. Well, mm. okay, I like Starman, everybody likes Starman, but whatever. But Cable, Cable is not a high seller. Cable has never been a high seller. Cable was not a high seller when he was in the Leafeld days with the pouches. He was not like the number one character. Why does Thanos have an ongoing now? Why is Ben Riley getting a, an ongoing? Why were they launching Squadron Supreme spinoffs after Secret Wars, all of which has been canceled by now? And to go back to the numbers, this is thanks to Charles Hoffman's research over on CBR. Listen to this number. Marvel have, between October of 2015 and February of 2017, either launched or relaunched over one Hundred titles. One hundred titles in less than two years. Twenty-five of those were canceled before they reached issue ten. They didn't even make it a whole year. 
Seven of them have only just started. They haven't even completed their first arc yet, so if they haven't gotten the axe, they might soon. Right? All this glut, and it's short-lived glut too, which makes it worse, because not only are they launching way too many books, they're canceling the books so quickly that nobody is, you know, nobody is convinced that any of these books are worth the price. Which, as we've established, is only going up. Number seven. Axel Alonso, if we mention that moron, let's get into it. Axel Alonso said in a public forum in front of a whole lot of people that he was the furthest thing from an SJW. Now, if we treat the term SJW as the extreme end of the spectrum of how much do I care about people who don't look like me, the furthest thing from that end of the scale is a neo-Nazi. Now, I don't think that's what he was trying to say, but this demonstrates how clearly Marvel do not actually care about diversity in anything other than a sales tactic. They don't see any difference between the idea of having a minority character as a lead in their book and a variant cover. It's the same thing to them. So we see this very clearly in, in their hiring policies too, right? It doesn't matter to them that they had Chelsea Kane and they have Saladin Ahmed and they have Tanahisi Coates. These people are not setting agendas at Marvel. They're not determining the course of the Marvel Universe. They're not writing the crossovers that say these are the big stories, right? They are there to do their thing and leave. They're there to fill the quota and get gone afterwards. Now, I want to add to that. Go ahead. Because one of the defenses that people always pull out of their whatevers, where the sun don't shine, or you know, is that Marvel is a business, and that they have Marvel is a business. They should seek out profit, and doing these non-diverse books is what gives them money. Now, again, as we've demonstrated, using simple sales data—that's a lie. Those non-diverse books are flopping and failing just as much as any book starring a female, a black female, a black man. All of those books flop with Marvel anyway, except for the very few. I think Spider-Man is the one book by Marvel that constantly sells the same thing. Mm -hmm. But even so, even if it wasn't true, Marvel hasn't decided to start aiming for a more diverse audience because they're like, oh, we should be so nice about it. No, they did it because they've looked at the price data for other things. They look at Rena Telegmeier's books and said, oh my God, that woman writing lady books, starring ladies aimed for young adult girls, is outselling all of our graphic novels combined by ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. Raina Telegmeier's books for graphic novels are the top six places in the best-selling graphic novels of 2016. Marvel has not a single book, and at least before, I think, the 20th Well, place. to be completely accurate, they do have two books there, but the books are Star Wars. It's not Marvel Universe right, right. stuff, so... Marvel Universe starts yeah. at 20. Now, it's not that Marvel can't sell diverse to diverse people, that those people don't buy comics. That's bullshit. They do. They do it all the time. They don't buy Marvel comics, not because of some anathema. They don't buy it because Marvel comics is terrible at selling to them. Mm -hmm. Because every single aspect of 97% of, of their books 
He's telling these people, do not read me. Somebody uh, posted online a panel from a, a page from a recent X-Men book. I don't remember which page was mm-hmm. it. In which Storm is having this dramatic speech about how it's important for us to triumph and overcome tragedies and whatever. And it starts with a shot of her ass. Her ass is speaking to the students. And, and the point was... Why would you do that? Of course. And, You're so automatically why. aiming for a fan service shot. You don't even think this is a book that should be, this book starring young X-Men, should be by all rights aimed at the young adult crowd. Including women who don't want to see it yeah. on their first page, on their first shot. Yeah. It's so automated within them that this should be the opening page. And even, you know what? Even if... They somehow miraculously manage to nevertheless market like let's say by some miracle of ignorance or blindness or a momentary error one of their books actually does make it into someone's hands that brings me to point number eight which is unstable creative teams let's remind everyone that after secret wars you Which was supposed to be the big deck clearing exercise, right? All new, all different Marvel. The immediate aftermath of that event, 24 series kept going with the same writers that were attached to them. In some cases, also the same artist. Why did we know this? Because Secret Wars got delayed and solicits told us exactly what was coming down the line. So it ended up being more of a jumping off point for older readers than a fresh start for new readers. I mean, at least Crisis on Infinite Earths made a sincere attempt to start over. They screwed it up, but at least that was sincere. This? Even if you were, by chance, a reader who was not reading Marvel Comics and you wanted to see what the deal was because you really loved the Guardians movie or you really loved the Netflix shows and you pick up something that's after Secret Wars, good luck. You're paying three times as Try much to- as the Netflix account costs. And you're probably not going to get anything that's anywhere in the vicinity of that. Also, try to make sense of how the stories are set up. Try to read the Thor trades, right? You like the Thor movie, you want to read it, and somebody tells you, oh, the Jason Aaron run is great, you should go read that. So you're coming to the store and you're looking at the trades. Wait, should I start with Thor God of Thunder, Volume 1? Or Mighty Thor, Volume 1? Or Thor Goddess of Thunder, Volume 1? Mm-hmm. And what's this? Jason Aaron, Thor's Complete Collection, Volume 2, collecting both Unworthy Thor and Thor Goddess of Thunder. And you're saying, well, I'll go to Comixology, and they give you Thor uh, 2016, 2017, Thor 2015, 2016, yeah. Unworthy Thor. Nothing makes sense. Of course you can't sell it to people, because they have to... I, I sometimes help at my local comic book store, and whenever a new client comes in and starts asking, you know, a kid want to read something... Explain to them how to start the simplest thing how to start reading in story is a job yeah and it shouldn't be a job it should be the simplest thing but they keep screwing it up and see that's a matter of logistics but there's another implication that recently occurred to me where again it's something that is directly contributing to Marvel's low sales and what it is is I'll start with an example. This is going to make me sound like an old fart, but let me start with an example here. Brian Michael Bendis's original alias, right? First series of alias, ran for 28 issues. 
You had time with Jessica Jones. You saw her in all these different situations, these storylines. You, you grew to care about her. You started seeing things develop towards the big climax. There used to be a time when if Marvel announced that a book was coming out with a given writer and a given artist, you could at least count on a year's worth of story for them. Two arcs minimum. I'm not even talking about what goes on at Image where books go on for 30, 40, 50 issues and really create emotional attachments with readers, right? It gives you a sense of history and direction and long-term payoff. By contrast, the latest volume of Ghost Rider, Robbie Reyes, had, well, actually, you know what? Let's go large here. In the entire run of the all-new Ghost Rider, Robbie Reyes, he started out with 12 issues that had three different artists, and then a five-issue relaunch that crammed in Silk, Amadeus Cho, and Wolverine in an A-plot that had nothing to do with Ghost Rider. So you can play these shell games with your creative teams all you want, but at some point, readers are going to realize you're hiding the ball behind your back. What is the point? Even if the trades were being numbered properly, creative teams don't stick around on given books long enough from to do more than an initial storyline. And then what is the point of becoming invested? And once you have, like, once that penny drops for you, once you realize that there's no long-term commitment here, that there's no attempt to get you interested in a longer-running story, then the new book comes out, and what are you supposed to think? Why should I start reading Chips Darsky's Spider-Man? I'm sure it's going to be hilarious. I'm also positive he's not going to last more than a year. Why should I bother? I'm not here to just, just for like quick entertainment and, and leave because quite frankly, they charge too much for that. If I'm getting invested to the point of spending hundreds of dollars on these comics, I am going to at least expect that they can do something long term and they can't. Now, yep. this brings us to really my last point on the issue. And, but I think this is the most critical one. Going back to the Jemis and Quesada era, right, the early 2000s, and really through to today, I think that Marvel's overall attitude towards its readers has changed. You know, I'm thinking here, even at the lowest points of the 90s, I don't remember creators daring to openly accuse their readers, the people who were buying their comics, of being the source of their content problems. Marvel has gotten used to pointing the finger for failed initiatives at literally everyone but themselves. It's the reader's fault for not pre-ordering. It's the retailer's fault for not pushing. It's Rich Johnson's fault for spoiling. It's Diamond's fault for pricing. It's Andrew Garfield's fault for breaking up with Emma Stone. It's Watu's fault for not wearing underwear when he walked over that floor vent. Just, it doesn't stop. You've got these people like Dan Slott and Nick Spencer and Steven Wacker who are these sniveling, thin-skinned man-babies who cannot take a word of criticism without throwing infantile tantrums. They won't hear it. Nothing. You cannot say anything to them. And how then, as a direct result of that, can it come as any fucking surprise that their work is subsequently not what readers want? They have no idea what their readership wants because they don't listen. Yes, every creator has the inherent right to tell whatever kind of story they want. That is true. But if you are working with established franchises, then I'm sorry, all the auteurs, you're going to have to worry yourselves out just a little and give your audience some inkling of what they are asking for. 
If you don't, they will not care. They will not buy your books. I think very highly of Mark Wade, but I don't know why he's writing Champions. I don't know why they took all of their teen heroes and put it on one book and gave it to a man who, God bless him, is a great writer, but is also pushing 60. That does not make any kind of sense to me. Well, to be fair, the Archie run. The Archie run is different, and I'm going to talk a lot about the Archie run later on in the episode, but yeah, Archie saying, has a different I'm, sensibility. I just want to say about Mark Wade in general, my rule about Mark Wade comic is this. When he's trying to be a fun storyteller, he's great. When he's trying to be a message writer, i.e. Strange Fruit, he tends to be But terrible. the problem, the underlying issue, Mark Wade is really just one example, right? It's, yeah, yes. yes you know, Nick Spencer... People have been telling him for months, months, that because of the current political situation in the United States, nobody, nobody wants to read a story about Captain America being a Nazi. We don't want it. If it had been a Clinton presidency, then yes, the atmosphere would have been different and the reception would have changed as a result of that. Now, it is not what anybody wants. And you are, Spencer digs his heels in and points the finger at comics journalists and says, oh, they're just doing it for clickbait as if there's any money in that at all. Right? Shout out to Al Kennedy and Paul O'Brien for pointing that out. They are, they stick their fingers in their ears and accuse everyone else of their problems. But unfortunately, that tactic does not work. Because all it says is, we, readers, are no longer welcome here. You don't give a damn what we want. You don't want to hear anything that we have to say. Why the hell are we paying for overpriced, overstuffed, oversaturated, overwritten, poorly drawn, poorly thought out, poorly constructed, lame-ass attempts at diversity when literally every other company other than Marvel are doing it better than them? Why? Marvel, because Marvel have gotten so used over the decades of ruling the direct market, of being unable to make any mistake that would drive the readers away because there wasn't any other option for over 20 years since the 90s. It was Marvel or DC. Nobody looked at Image up until I think 2006 or 2007. We didn't have so many companies as we do now, but now when a reader is being told basically, no, we won't tell the story you want to hear and we won't do it with the artists you want to see or the writers you want to read. And by the way, we're also going to call you out online and say, fuck you, reader, pay us more money. Okay, then I'll go to Valiant. I'll go to Boom. I'll go to Aftershock. I'll go to Image. I'll go to Dynamite. I'll go to Dan Fantagraphics, Drawn and Quarterly, Self-Made Hero, Aftercake, Web Comics, Xenoscape. Don't forget Web Comics. What? Yeah, I'll go to webcomics who are mostly for free, whose artists are much more nicer when you talk to them online. I'll go to anywhere else but you. You are no longer... Well, they still are the biggest in terms of sales in the direct market. No. But A, the direct market... Now, the direct market is no longer the the leading thing in terms of... No, 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 but also... Store sales... But hang on, the the whole crisis... uh, Pun intended. The whole crisis that precipitated this summit is in fact they're losing now in the direct market. DC has been taking yes. top market share since Rebirth. And let me be clear here. It's not because DC is doing anything particularly different. DC are not better at this 
at any of the points that I just stressed. The only real difference is that, first of all, they are less inclined to openly berate their own readership, right? They don't have people like people in positions of power. As far as I know, I've never seen uh, who's running things there now. Bob Harris. I've never seen. I have no well, idea. Whoever. I've never seen. Even, you know what? Even Dan DiDio, who's prone to making stupid remarks, doesn't, to my memory, has never said the readers are the problem. Because they don't pre-order. Well, not on Twitter. Not on Twitter or not in the last few yeah. years. The few DC people I follow on Twitter, which is where most of those problems begin. <laughs> said, Twi- Twitter, Twitter is a place to be careful if you're a person in a position of power within even a small market like comics because people will listen. And because you have to condense everything to a pithy 140-character yeah. statement, it's easy to sound stupid. But it's, it's very easy when you are actually stupid as many people <laughs> are, but still, you, you've, got, you've got to work for it. And the few DC people I follow, like Andrew Wheeler, who edits DC Comics right now, right? Is he? Yet it's... Uh, yeah, yeah, he, he did the Omega Man, he did, he's doing Green okay. Arrow. He, he sometimes says stuff that, you know, about a particular person or politically charged or whatever, but he's never rude about it because he knows what, yeah. at what position he's in. But he knows who's he talking that's to. A, that's really what I was trying to say. It's like, DC, yes, yes. you know, DC are not inherently better when it comes to portraying women, when it comes to portraying diversity. Really, the reason that they are taking the top market share is because Marvel is worse and because I think overall DC aren't doing the crossover thing. To my knowledge, yep. they have never sabotaged one of their own franchises that were like, they would never do to Batman what Marvel did to the X-Men. And as long as that's consistent, their sales are dropping too. But they are now ahead of Marvel simply because they're not screwing up on the same level. That's not to say that and DC that, is a haven of minorities and and uh, different ethnicities and women are, are... No, but they are at least not being as transparent and as phony as Marvel is. And really, Mr. Gabriel, those are your problems. That... All of those reasons are why your sales are down. It's why your fans are exhausted and burnt out and have no inclination to step up for you. It's got nothing to do with women. It's got nothing to do with diversity. And you trying to scapegoat them is transparent as hell and no one was fooled. We have seen this with all the backlash that's been going on from that comment, right? Setting aside the fact that he immediately knew he screwed up and put out another comment, right? That did not guarantee anything, but made it seem as if, oh, no, 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 no. We love Miles Morales. We love Squirrel Girl. We'd never do anything to to tank them like we did every other diverse character that we've ever had. We wouldn't do that. Trust us. No, David, they're not going to trust you. And when you do reboot your line and you do bring back all the white guys again to take over from all the other positions, when Tony Stark comes back and you forget that Riri Williams ever existed and your readers will still leave, I hope that you remember that you and Quesada and Alonzo and Dan Buckley and Brian Michael Bendis and all the other idiots at the House of Bad Ideas, the frat House of Bad Ideas, all of that, you did this. And that is all I have for Marvel. Whew. Yes. Okay. Honestly. Okay, now since we've spent all this time talking about how people are 
treating quote diverse unquote characters in a bad manner because as they claim well it helps sales if we have white people I've seen the ghost in the show movie oh my god I'm sorry I'm sorry two terrible things at the same time okay how, how bad was it it was it was the worst ghost in the shell related thing I've seen and I've seen uh, both uh, main main made to theater animated movies and The TV series, the straight-to-DVD sequel series that was, I think, two years ago. And I've read the manga. Mm. Some of the manga, not all of the manga. Uh, because uh, Shiro, I think it's Shiro, his recent work is... Well, he started as a rather pornographic artist, and he went first. Hang on, can so, you give me some uh, background on Ghost in the Shell? Because I'm not very familiar with it as a property. This okay, started okay. out as a so manga, you, right? Ghost in the Shell started as a cyberpunk manga. Mm-hmm. about a team of cyber cops working for the Japanese government in the future, stopping various cyber criminals. It was adapted in 1995 into a feature-length animated movie, which was a huge success and one of the biggest breaks of anime culture in the West. I think it was the one movie since Akira. Is this the movie that they said uh, ripped, uh, The Matrix ripped off? Uh, the Matrix certainly took some design points from it. I, if you ask me... The source of most philosophical bundlings in the Matrix was the invisible. You know, <laughs> no, I mean, but, but that was the one, right? That, that film specifically. A lot of people, yeah, yeah. Okay. And that movie was very well received. It was super popular. There was a sequel movie a few, about a decade later. Not as good, but still decent. Then, the, because it's Japan and their version of franchising is not to continue the story, but just do, as you, a Gundam fan, know, alternate versions of the same story. Mm. different continuities so you had a two season running TV show which was very good and I think two or three years ago there was a series of like short directed DVD movies five or four one-hour things right and they all basically follow the same story in which you have the major the protagonist of the story and you have their fellow officers at section 9 of the government okay now the movie is so So weird because it takes place in the future they never tell us where exactly that it takes place because all of all of the characters are very uh, different in terms of racial makeover because the major is white two of her people are of Japanese origin one of them is african-american wait the major was the white chief... in the anime movie no no in, in this oh you're talking okay Scott, okay I see because it When I, when I first heard the controversy about it, about why casting Scarlett Johansson in the role traditionally belonging to a Japanese woman, and I thought, okay, she's going to be the odd one out. But no, it takes place in some odd futuristic mishmash. Okay. And I thought, okay, so it takes place in, Amer- in a future America. That makes sense. Because if you're going to change the race of the character, well, don't set it up in Japan, which is very culturally homogenous, right? Mm-hmm. But no, no, no. It's not culturally homogenous at all. There is one person there who speaks Japanese. Uh, great Japanese actor uh, Takashi Kitano, mm-hmm. who is the only guy who speaks Japanese within that movie. So I'm sitting, and he's their boss. Right. So I'm, and he's always talking about calling to the prime minister, not the president, the prime minister. So I'm sitting there thinking throughout the whole movie because they never explain, does this take place in a Japan that's been Englishized? And if it's English size, because everybody else is speaking English, why is this one guy who's the head of the department, the super secret police department, is speaking Japanese? So I have no idea. Right. 
And the movie goes along, and instead of borrowing plot points from the orig- from either the manga or the original movie, it's a terrible, boring cyberpunk mishmash of A, Blade Runner, B, uh, Robocop, and in the oddest design choice ever, Judge Dredd, the 1995 movie. <laughs> oh, no! Not the 95 movie! <laughs> the shots of the city are basically like the 1995 Dread overhead shot with those huge holograms. Wait, 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 wait. Are you telling me that Scarlett Johansson at some point goes, I am the lure? No, 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 just the design. Oh, just my design. God. Uh, and <laughs> so the plot is something completely different from the original manga or the movie, which is fine, because if you're going to remake, do something, do something new, right? What's the point otherwise? Only they stop every 20 minutes for them to... Try as faithfully as they could recreate a scene from the movie, from the 1995 animated movie. Mm. So they have a fight scene choreographed the exactly same way in the exact same position. Only it doesn't look as good because you're spending hundreds of hundred million dollar on CGI, something that an animated movie did for 20 million dollars and looked a whole lot better doing. So it's just kind of slow and ponderous. And people are philosophizing crap at one another. The original movie, by the way, 88 minutes, this movie, almost two hours, and nothing. <laughs> and, um, and the big twist, which made a lot of people angry online, and rightfully so. A lot of people were angry the minute Johansson was announced as being cast, and, I, and my opinion of it was, well, if you're going to remake a movie, if you're going to put it somewhere else, it's not the best choice, but it's fine. Just like I had no problem with... Uh, Magnificent Seven being not being cast by Japanese people when they remade it from uh, the Seven Samurai, mm-hmm. right? It's fine. People do it all the time. They even do it in Japan when they when they did their version of uh, uh, what was that story, The Count of Monte Cristo. When they did an anime version right. of that, it was mostly Japanese people. Yeah. Perfectly fine. But no, this takes place in Japan, and the big twist, spoilers all the way, folks, okay. is that. The character Scarlett Johansson is playing is the mind of a Japanese girl kidnapped by the government and implanted into the body of white Scarlett Johansson. Oh, no. The robot body. No, no. Like, literal white. No, why would you do that? And it's introduced, and I'm almost thinking, okay. Is that original to the film? something interesting. Yes, to this film, not to the 1990. Oh my god. It's the big element that you show to introduce. And again, technically, theoretically, possibly maybe, you have something very interesting there in the metaphor of taking a Japanese mind, soul, right? The ghost in the shell and putting it in a western shell. And what does it say about culture erasure? But no, it's it ends she meets her original body's mother and they hug it out because the mother knows that she's the real Japanese. Inside. Oh, no! That's Tom Cruise in The Last Samurai. No! It's a thousand times worse. No, you can't. No, okay, okay. No, see, this and is... Again, other than that, it's not, and other than that, even if your excuse was, well, the movie's fine. No, it's not. It's terrible. It's boring. The action is boring. Everybody acts like deadpan, serious, non-emoting, whatever. Just watch your... If you want to watch Ghost in the Shell... There are four different versions that are better. See, that's four the thing. Four different versions. That is the thing that amazes me. It's very... The, the way that you're describing it... In fact, the way that you're describing it right down to the whitewashing controversy reminds me so powerfully of Shyamalan's uh, Avatar The Last Airbender. Yeah, the yeah, exact yeah. same thing. It, from the idea that... 
live action CGI has to spend millions more dollars to do what the animated show was already doing well enough to the idea that there's no innovation. And then they flipped the ethnicities of the characters so that in, in the show, it was this Japanese Chinese hybrid culture that was the Fire Nation, the villains. And the heroes were essentially Inuits and one kid who was probably from Buddhist, uh, right? Tibet. From, Tib- from Tibet as, yeah. yeah, from Tibet as Pretty culture. much Tibet. And, and then they flipped it around so that all the good guys were white and all, and, and what's his name? The kid from Slumdog Millionaire played Zuko. And yeah. that was like, no, 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 and, no. And once again, their justification for that, just as we've seen in recent years, the justification for the casting in stuff like Gods of Egypt or Exodus Gods and Kings is that, well, we have to cast those leading white people because they sell more tickets. And what do all those films have in common, Sean, including Ghost in the Shell? Flops. Bombing. They're bombing. They're bombing on screens. They're bombing. Oh. In the cashiers, they're bombing everywhere. These movies do not succeed. Ghost in the Shell right now is projected to lose $60 million. Schadenfreude! Which is, which, is about, which is, if I'm not mistaken, $40 million and it cut more than it cost to make the original movie. This pleases me, Tom. Be- because... Sean is very again, pleased by this development. And if we're allowed to like return to Marvel and tie the whole thing into one horrible, beautiful knot... Mm-hmm. The people up top of these, all of these companies, be it Marvel, be it Sony, be it whatever, are always intent on learning the wrong lesson. Because I'll guarantee to you, the lesson learned from the failure of Ghost in the Shell is that female-led movies don't succeed, once again. Sure. That will be the lesson they'll learn. That will be the thing that they put on statements, and that will be lead their future slate of movies. Sure. Not, not that... I don't know. Let's not make no. terrible movies. Let's not let's not whitewash. But the idea that an actor, an actor, or even a group of actors can make a movie successful is something that worked in the '90s, in the '80s, in the '50s, in the '60s, in the tw- 2000s. As we've seen countless times, it no longer works. Tom Cruise can't make a movie succeed by his own. Will Smith can't make a movie succeed by his own. All of the guys from Marvel, from the Marvel movies, that Marvel supposedly made stars of. Once you put them out of the Marvel Universe, once you take Hemsworth out of the Thor costume, he is not a $500 million guy, right? right? Nobody bothered to watch the other Hemsworth movies. Uh, Chris Evans, as much as I like him, none of his movies were that big of a success. Ironically, the only one whose other movies were successful was Scarlett Johansson. And even here, we can see that there's a limit to that. Right. This strange idea that we have to cast white people because the audience know white people and therefore they'll succeed is bullshit in the year 27. It's also it's not... But, I mean, you said like to connect it to Marvel, and I completely agree with you. I think the commonality there is this excuse that they trot out is not something that they are actively trying to prove. I don't think it's even something that they believe in as an ideology. I think the core issue here, when you really scrape all the dirt and grime away and go right down to the core, it's that Marvel, much like whoever it was that did Ghost in the Shell, who was the studio behind it? Fox? Sony. Sony. Sony, Okay. The thing with them is they don't want to create films or properties or books or anything that have minority characters, women, anything that's not. They want to create straight white male protagonists. That's all they want. That is the only thing they care about. When they say, 
you know, now we can use a Ghost in the Shell or we can use Elektra or we can use Catwoman to prove that female-led films are not successful. It's not because they actually believe that these films demonstrate that point. It's because they didn't want to do it anyway. These films were probably made over their objections. I will guarantee you that when someone pitched Ghost in the Cell before they even thought of hiring Scarlett Johansson, the first thought must have been, let's get a white guy. What's, uh, what's Tom Hiddleston doing mm. right now? Let's find him, right? I promise you that that's what they were thinking of. Let's find Eddie Redmayne and give him another one. And then that didn't work out so well. Da, 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 da. They're like, fine, a woman, but make sure she's white. That's what they care about. That's all they want. So they will use these things to prove much like David Gabriel is doing, right? They try to use low sales to justify a point that they already think anyway. That's all it is. And they will fail. They will fail time and time again. And I will take great pleasure in their failures. That's what they get. Okay. I shall move on to actual comics. I have exercised the demons. This house is clear. It's good because we had actually some decent comics this for this episode for these recent two. Weeks. Yes. What do you got? Uh, shall we start with uh, Kim Reaper? Sure. This is Kim Reaper, written, drawn, lettered, inked, whatever, everything and anything by Sarah Grali. This is an ongoing series from Oni Press. Mm -hmm. And the plot is we have this girl called Becca, and she's in love with a girl in her... Uni it's university, college. right? I'm not mistaken. Yeah. It's college class. Yes, uh, this goth girl called Kim, and she follows Kim without Kim noticing to her day job, which is a bit of a trouble because Kim's day job is just a grim ripper. She's supposed to harvest souls and bring and carry them on to the afterlife. And as, as she follows her to her job, they discover that She's A, she's only allowed to harvest little cats because she's new at this job. And B, that the owner of the cat that she's supposed to harvest for this day is not the kind. kind. He's not the guy. It's not the nice cat lady who will just let, let her do what she wants. No, no, no. This is a dangerous person. Now, I, I have to give Grayley so much credit because the old cat lady reveal is very, very clever. I was laughing the entire scene. Every time Becca said something, and she's like, oh, it's going to be fine. And then, like, the panel immediately contradicts her. The reverse happens. Oh, yes. my God, I laughed. That was funny. It, it's a, she, has a, she has a great comic. I'm just looking at the reveal page. Daddy's back. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, maybe, maybe it'll go to sleep. And I... My what? My third hobby, aside from working out in cats, not going to sleep ever. <laughs> and then all the cats pour energy drinks down his throat. Uh, it was funny. It was an amusing moment. What do you think of the book overall? Uh, I like the jokes more than I liked the plot and the characters. Yeah. I will say this. Because it's at this point, and again, this is the first issue, and it's a comedy series, so jokes is enough for me. I'm going to stick with this. Mm. But it does feel a bit uh, flat in terms of emotion. Yeah. Because Becca's crush on Kim, as Kim herself admits, is it's supposed to be adorable, but it just comes out as creepy. Yeah. You're like, why, do you, why are you always staring at me? And it's one of those things that this style of, because of the style of drawing, is very over cartoony and everybody's a bit like chibi almost. Yeah. 
Like it's one step above, uh, the, you know, the Japanese chibi comedy style. Right. It's one step above that. It it allows them to like slid away a lot of the stuff that in a more naturalistic slash realistic style would just come out again as super creepy and gross. Yeah. Here it, it's kind of sweet, but not enough for me to be like, I really am invested in their future, in the future of this relationship. Yeah. I think... I'm more invested in the jokes. Honestly, I think that this book might be skewing a little younger than me in terms of its target audience, which is fine. You know, not everything has to be for me. I had, like, very similar experience to you in that, you know, I found some of the jokes to be very amusing and very entertaining, but the premise of the book is... Becca's infatuation with Kim, right? You have this whole sequence where Becca's like, I'm goth. Look at how goth I am. She's not goth at all. And her friend is trying to tell her that and she won't hear it because she, you know, she really has a crush on Kim. Something about that doesn't feel like it didn't convince me the way that, uh, you know, to use your favorite counter example, uh, Susan and McGraw in Giant Days. Where instantly, the yeah, moment yeah. that they bump into each other, you know that there's a history between them, and you feel it. Here, it was sort of like, you know, part of the problem is that Kim doesn't know who Becca is. So, Grayley is trying to, like, build up the dynamic of their relationship at the same time that she's doing the premise of the story, right? The idea that Kim is jumping around, teleporting from place to place, and reaping pets. It's something about, I, I think it really is sort of aimed maybe like one age bracket below me. And that's why it's not really clicking for me. I'm actually not going to stick around for the immediate future. I might come back for the trade. Because, by the way, a question yeah. for you. Is, is Becca's friend, uh, whatever his name is, is that supposed to be Chip Zdarsky? Not everyone who has a beard and a flannel shirt is Chip Zdarsky, Tom. I don't know. I just looked at the image, you know, like... <laughs> no, yeah, no. Not everyone who uh, anyway, has a I, beard and, like, speaks proper English and wears flannel shirts is Chip Zdarsky. It would be nice if it was. You know, we can always use more chip. I think that actually anyway, is an instruction I, I, on Pillsbury Doughboy. Like, use more chips. Now, as uh, if we want to go back to the comics, yes. we can. Like I said, I, I like it simply because there are so few... A, there's so few humor comics, which is odd because... Is comic, there? You know, it's... I think so. In mm. terms of the mass market, direct, I can think of very few humor comics. And B, I can think of a very few humor comics that actually make me laugh because so much of funny comics nowadays is post-Deadpool, I'm random, and just throwing shit at you with, with no connection whatsoever and being like, isn't it weird and cool and awesome? Oh. And here it's just nice to see a humor comic where the joke are almost like classic Looney Tunes inversion beats and slapstick. Yeah, but that doesn't strike me as unusual. It strikes me as a little weird for Oni specifically because the only other book I can think of that had something similar to that tone was Kaiju Max. But Kaiju Max, you know, it did its run and then it left. Kaiju Max got serious. Kaiju Max got very At serious. some point, but in the... Well, I didn't get that far. But, like, at some point in the beginning, it was still sort of humorous. And then, like, most of the books that you're talking about, the sort of offbeat humor that Kim Reaper has, I'm actually surprised this is Oni and not Boom. Because Boom does this, essentially. It very much looks like the Boom style. Yeah. Kaboom style. Uh, we've talked about Cody and the creeps in the exactly. la in the last episode. 
now I will say this boom tends to start with like a four issue mini and if that works they approve further issues and this seems to aim for an ongoing from the get yeah. so maybe the boom or like or maybe she had just had good relationship with Oni because Raleigh started as a webcomic artist so maybe some some head up at Oni <clears> saw her stuff and like do you want to do something else right because they did that Oni released the they had open submissions people yeah. who, yeah, they they had the people who do our cats are more famous than us. Yeah. The webcomic, the Johnny Wonder one. Mm-hmm. So they recruited them and they published that collection. So hey, if you want to do, if you want to scout webcomic artists, that's a good thing to do. That's right? a lot. Looking for actual new yeah, talent. It's a lot of amazing talent. Granted, that a lot of that talent is used to having a certain measure of independence. But on the flip side of that, you know, Oni does have access the the print market specifically could use more exposure to webcomic talent i don't see any problem with that uh speaking of comedy comics written and drawn by one here person, we go mostly. Uh, this this one's for me obviously yeah. uh rock candy mountain number one written and drawn by by kyle starks with design help from dylan todd and coloring by chris schweizer mm. That's an amazing name, Chris Schweizer. And it's a comedy book about a hobo who, in the post-World War II America who is out to look for the legendary Rock Candy Mountain from the song. Yeah. He's, he's convinced that it exists. <laughs> and hot on his heels is a Satan, the old Beelzebub. Mm. And in the first issue, he meets the guy who he's would-be sidekick, a guy who's new to the hobo life and needs everything explained to him. And they run afoul of the hobo mafia, which take over train cars and demands tribute. And then he punches them. Mm. Okay. It's so good. It's it's just so, so good. Now, Kyle Starks, if you listen to the podcast, you know he did Sax Castle. One of my favorite graphic novels. Not just of the last few years, but... <laughs> Ever! Anything. <laughs> and... And he's doing right now, I believe, he's writing the Rick and Morty comics. Also, for Oh, my God. If we, if we mention them. Which is one of those things because you assume a Rick and Morty comic would be a failure because a lot of what makes the cartoon work is the voice actors and the personality they bring. Mm-hmm. The comic actually works. It's a very good comic, the Rick and Morty show. I recommend you read it. So here is more of his old, styly... Uh, you have this stern hero, exactly like jo- uh, John Sexcastle, was it? James Sexcastle? I think it was John. Yeah, something Sexcastle. That was the guy's name. You, our hero is Jackson, and he's a very stern, taciturn. He'll only say what needs to be said. And he, when when the times come, he let those fists and kicks fly, and he takes no crap from anybody. And it's all portrayed in those wonderfully constructed pages. Mm. This comic actually took me some time to read. And you can see, when you follow the page, you can see you have like 10 panels per page, 9, 7, 11 at a certain point. It's not a lazy comic. This is one of those things where you read the issue and you're like, I got my money's worth. Mm. And the jokes work. Every single joke works. There's a, like I said, there's a scene where he's threatened by the Hobo Mafia, which is a funny concept by itself. And the explanation to how they get all their money is another great joke that I won't dream of spoiling. <laughs> And has he fighting them for this nice, beautiful two-page scene of, again, it's supremely well-constructed action. His psychic looks upon him in awe, and you have this shot in his eyes, and he's saying, he's got a punch diarrhea, and their faces are the toilet bowl, (laughs) which is such a, 
It's such a perfect nineteen post nineteen eighties action line. Ah, uh, that it is. And and here's here's the thing about what makes uh, Kyle Stark's comic work for me. Yeah, it's they're mostly a jokey affair, right? They're supposed to make you laugh, and they do. But like with Sex Castle, there is heart beneath all of that. Yeah, there is his uh, Jackson's journey. The idea of finding this hobo paradise is treated as a joke by other characters, but not by him. And just like Sex Castle was in its heart about a guy who's only new violence and wants to learn to change, but can't. He just can't. Yeah. And this is also in the same way. This is about a guy who's looking out to get out of the terrible life that he's in. Because, you know, he's a hobo. It's not played for laugh that he has no job, no prospect, that the world is terrible to him, that nobody's going to give him anything, and he can only dream of this one perfect place. And this is not played for laugh. Mm. This is actually something you can get behind, that we all wanted to go to this better place, right? At a certain point. And to add it all, there actually is a three-page essay in the end by, uh, let me see, by who's it from? I'm looking for the name here. Jess Nevins! Uh, no, Eric Newson, PhD, from the University of Central Missouri about the history of the Big Rock Candy Mountain song. <laughs> cool. A three-page academic essay. If we work hard enough in our university, maybe we can write essays for the back of comics. For the back of Kyle Stark's comics, specifically. His comics, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm going to have to start learning a hobo lingo. <laughs> change, my, change my major and minor to hoboism. But yeah, I'm totally there. I have a good sense this is going to be my favorite series of the year. I, I'm having really a hard time thinking of anything else that was announced coming soon that's going to overtake it. This comic is for me, Sean. Cool. Uh, along the similar but somewhat inverted line, uh, I have found the comic I hate the most this year. Uh, this is Ooh. Riverdale Number 1 by Roberto Aguirre-Sacasa, Will Ewing, oh. Joe Isma, Michael Grassi from Archie Comics. And, you know, it's taken me a while to pin down why I hate Rivers Riverdale so much. Just, just, just flames. Flames on the side of my face, Tom. That's how much I hate it. And I figured it out thanks to this comic. Here's the thing. When Mark Wade and Chibzdarsky modernized the Archie characters and Riverdale itself, the changes were thorough, right? You look at the very first issue and you can see that Staples, when she designed these characters, she toned down the cartoony style in a very, very, very straightforward way, right? Archie has, you know, mm -hmm. he, he's got freckles and he's got this head of orange hair, but he does not look like a cartoon anymore. And the way delivered a script where the first thing that happens is Archie talking about how he and Betty broke up, setting up the lipstick incident. Everyone is trying to bribe Jughead with food to tell him what happened. The reason that it worked as well as they did is because what Wade and Zdarsky essentially did was to take these characters and imagine them or reimagine them, I should say, as if they were analogous to people with actual depth rather than 1950s cartoons. What Riverdale does is backslide because, and, and this comic is actually a perfect example of that. Archie spends most of the first story either shirtless or naked. The highlight of the second story is Betty walking down a hall at school in an outfit that would make Hooters waitresses uncomfortable. 
what Riverdale, both the show and the comic, have essentially done is undo Wade and Zdarsky's work. They've reduced the characters back down to stereotypes, except that now, instead of sugar, honey, honey stereotypes, they're CW stereotypes, which means attractive 20-somethings playing teens, having sex, and murder. That's... That's what it is. That's all it is, right? Every single interaction that is that happens between any two characters who are purporting to be teens in this book is horrendously cliche. And, you know, I want to give them marginal credit for catering as much to the female gaze as they do to the male gaze. Again, in the style of the CW, right? They tend to put the male eye candy and the female eye candy on equal footing, which is fine in theory. I I understand with I haven't watched the series. I've watched like I think 20 minutes and I haven't read a comic that they for this version they've undone Jughead's out uh, asexuality yes. that was a very major theme in the new comic series both in his solo series and in the Archie reboot in general. Not only that in the, in this comic it. Jughead stares at Betty with her stripper outfit and he's like hashtag #hot betty. And I'm like mm nope. Because, you know, this, it does sort of go into a field that I'm not eminently qualified to talk about, but that as an observer, I can say, you know, the CW does not understand the concept of asexuality because so much of what they do is invested in objectification and sexualization. And, you know, people just need to be screwing and they need to be topless and they need to show skin and they need to have abs and they need to have big boobs or whatever, right? It's so much is dependent on that. So naturally you present a character as core to the Archie narrative as Jughead, as not being interested in sex, they wouldn't know what to do with him in that scenario. He might as well not exist. And you see that in this comic too. So much of it is about like, you know, and I don't, you know, I don't want to cross the line into prudish rhetoric because that's not what this is. I'm not saying like, oh God, they put sex in Riverdale. How horrible. But it's like, no. When you go down to what it is specifically that this title, this particular title did well with the reboot, was to present these characters as if there was something more than just, oh my god, these people are hot, let's have them have sex to really bad MTV music, right? Something beyond that. In the Riverdale show, Archie is being statutory raped by his teacher. Who, like, you would have, the only way you could think that that would be a good idea is because in your mind, you're doing the hot teacher routine, which isn't even new for the CW because Dawson's Creek did that 5,000 years ago and it was gross and creepy then too, you know? So they, they don't, it's their one shtick. It's the only thing that they know how to do. And what Riverdale did was just to take that one technique and drop it square in the middle of characters who, in other comics, in recent comics, the, the Archie reboot isn't even two years old. In, just completely annihilate it. Oh, I, I was, I was just furious, you know, it, it's just, and it took me a while to, it took me this comic to realize it, because at first I thought, this is probably something that the network would have imposed on any script that Aguirre Sacasa, who should know better, 
that Aguirre Sacasa submitted. But now I'm seeing, okay, here's a comic that's completely free of the CW and is still doing the same thing. Betty be walking around with two band-aids and a potato chip. Why? Just because. You know, so it's a real problem. And it, it's a miscalculation on their part because all it does is just regurgitate, again, like the sameness of it all, where the whole appeal of the Archie reboot in the first place, the reason that it's doing as well as it is doing now is because, God, finally, teenagers can be depicted as being interested in things that it may include sex, but are not exclusively sex. There are other things for them to do. So screw Riverdale is what I'm saying. Okay. Um, I've read Eleanor and the Egret number one. Have you read that? I show? have indeed. And I would like to preface your review by saying that I demand, I demand a band that crossover. Hmm. I actually thought about a King City crossover. We can do all three. There's a crossover that yeah. I want. <laughs> what? Uh, it's a new series written by John Lehman. This is big thing after Chew, which only ended about six months ago. So he's jumping straight into deep water with ongoing continuing series. And Sam Keith, mm. that's a name I haven't heard in quite a while. And surprisingly uh, so, did, given how good this is. Uh, because he, I think the last thing of his that I've not even read, I've heard of was Zero Girl. And that was seven or eight years ago. Oof. And I... Uh, I I certainly I don't remember his name because he was huge. He was one. Of, he was a. He was the best thing that came out of the early image line. Everybody agrees on it at this point because everything else was for, well forgotten by history. But the Max and Doors. Oh right, that's what he's doing. He's there was the the IDW Max, the Max. remix series yeah. where maximized where they redid the coloring and the inking and old issues i believe yeah but that was sort of retreading old content i don't think he put out any well, yeah but, but he, he worked on it yeah it wasn't just a thing that the company did he physically worked on it so that's what he was doing and anyway he's the artist in this and we have Rhonda Pattinson on coloring and also john layman on lettering john layman is not only a great writer he's an amazing letterer mm-hmm Lettering and Chew was one of my favorite things about that series. Everything was my favorite thing about it. But here, it's the lettering is great straight from the get-go when you have the second page where our titular hero falls down and you have the splat uh, <laughs> letter down on the, on the mud. Yeah. It's a very nice series. Anyway, the plot is Eleanor is an art thief and she has a pet egret that can talk and do some other fantastic things. And they seal paintings in, in Paris, right? Yeah. That's why I said yeah, I wanted the, the band that uh, crossover. They're... Yeah, yeah. The Museum, the Coulier, and Toy. And I think it takes... The time period isn't specific, but it's not the present day. I think it's also, like you said, it's like weird 1930s, 1920s type thing. Something like that, yeah. Because they're still using detectives in sort of the old-fashioned style. and uh, Inspector! And, and Eleanor's wearing, you know, sort of like the old-school dresses with the corsets. So it's got to be like turn this, of the century. Yeah, Detective Bellinger is hot on her tail, not knowing that she's the thief. Of course, he's just looking for the person who stole the art from the museum. And he also has a pet cat with its own set of unique abilities. So it seems to be something that's... Not unique to them, something that is part of this world where people have this sort of uh, connection with uh, pets that gives them power. Like, uh, what was that fantasy series name? Uh, the one about animosity? atheism? Uh, 
No, no, no. Fantasy book series that was made into a terrible movie. Golden Compass. Oh, uh, His Dark Materials. His Dark Materials, yeah. Philip so Pullman, yeah. I assume it's something like that, oh, even though we only see two people right now. Yeah, I mean, there's room for a couple of different twists depending on where they're going with it. Mm. You know, because like, the last panel yeah. of the issue also has the egret doing something rather unusual. So yeah. it, it could Very... go either way. Mm-hmm. What did you think about it, Sean, in I general? I really enjoyed in it. I really, really did enjoy it. Uh, first of all, I mean, you know, Keith's artwork is phenomenal. Uh, I'm, I'm not a fan of the Max. That was where I primarily remembered him for. And it wasn't anything that really blew me away. But everything is so clean and neat and detailed here, right? And he also, sometimes he doesn't, he leaves things a, li- a little vaguer, you know, a few like, vague smears of color and it works in that context and the the writing you know layman i've i've gone back and forth on layman for a long time i don't know if eleanor is a compelling protagonist yet because what layman does is like in the context of these these pages she changes between three different types of characters, right? You see, and in fact, like, Keith R draws attention to this, like, which is the real Eleanor? So you have the high yes. society lady who's running around uh, all these museums looking at the paintings, etc. You have the art thief, and you have this transition to a sort of civilian persona where she's running around with a ponytail and shorts and, and jogging down streets. And, and she's very confused, and yeah. she... She like mumbles her answers and what do I do? What do I do? Oh my god! Oh my god! She's she's not in control as she is in her thief persona, which is a little strange. You know, it's it's kind of weird. I, I am I'll say like I'm not necessarily captivated by Eleanor. Like she's not a character that I'm immediately emotionally invested in. But I am curious to see where he's going with this. So I am... The world is more intriguing than the main character yes. at this point. Yeah. It is sort of the... I mean, I'm, I'm bringing it up again. It is sort of the flip side of Bandette. Whereas Bandette was a character who you immediately loved. Because from the first page, she's mm-hmm. charming and she's funny and she's running around. Here you have Eleanor in all of these different situations without necessarily a consistent through line. So I'm not sure where they're going to go with it. But I am curious. This thing with the egret, you know, they're pushing the idea of... I mean, first of all, I'm a sucker for the classy lady thief archetype, right? This goes back to Carmen Sandiego. But also the idea that because of this pet of hers, she's able to do things that other thieves can't because she can essentially fly. Right? Her egret is capable of carrying her. And something else. There's this one very cryptic panel where the egret's beak becomes a key which is why i said uh, yeah king cd yeah and it's it's never commented upon it's never explained it's just a thing that happens suddenly its beak is a key exactly so there's something else going on here there's more than meets the eye and on that level i'm curious where they'll go with it we'll see i will say the one one of the many things that make me like chew is that in the end they had answers for everything and anything all of the mysteries even if these answers were very weird and convoluted in terms of in-series continuity, they made sense. Right. They introduced all of the domino pieces and they, they made the puzzle work. Well, so when they do, Layman does it here, when he just throws around a lot of cryptic ideas that in most other series, first issue would, 
would make me be, oh my god, you're not gonna able to explain this, you're just gonna throw these things around and make me wait for 60 issues before throwing your conclusion for out of nowhere. Mm. I do trust Lehman to make it work. I... I would, but the trick is, I think, I don't remember if he knew all along that Chu would run for X amount of issues, that he knew that it would stop. Oh, no, no, no. They they, they stated it from the get-go that they're aiming for something like 60 issues. So I think it does depend greatly on how much space Lehman actually has here. I don't know that Aftershock would give him that kind of guarantee of you will be able to do 60 issues so you can have a slow burn and answer all of these questions. If it does turn out to be that way, then fantastic, right? Give him as much room as he needs. If not... So far... I mean, so far, not a single Aftershock series that I know of has been canceled. They well, Aftershock hasn't so been around for that long, though. No, but Insects is now issue 12, 13, yeah. right? But and that's as far as it goes. The sales are great, so it's still ongoing. You know, Animosity is, so, I think, 7 or, or 6 or 7 right now. You know, so these... So they, 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 they actually let their creators breathe. And well, if and if the sales go down, they still support them, which is good. Which is, Again, Marvel, this is what you should do. This is how you find a successful book. You let the book breathe for a while and you see if it works yes. in the bookstore, in resales, in, in comicsology, whatever. Yeah, the only caveat... <laughs> no, it's justified. The only, <laughs> the only caveat I have is just like... The, the thing about... I, I would hesitate to draw any conclusions about Aftershock overall policies and their intentions only because they're so new that at this point yes they're maintaining stability but their books haven't been around for you know like they haven't passed the two-year test right when they if insects gets to issue 24 or animosity gets to 50 or something like that then we can be like okay they have some kind of bedrock for allowing books to go on we, we don't necessarily know that yet their you know their their catalog is very straightforward and and I'm not going to say restrictive, but you know they have how many books? They, no way they have more than a dozen books on the shelves on any given month. I think about I think about a dozen. Right yeah, now. yeah. You know, so they are keeping things very controlled and very straightforward. And for now, I think that that works. The question of what will happen, like if they would allow this to continue. With the same kind of long-term goal as Chu had from day one, I I don't know yet. But I am sticking around for this because Mm. I'm curious. I do want to know more. Yeah, Keith Art is incredible here. And the idea that he can pass so much information about the characters simply by their acting and the way their face shift, even though his style is inherently very distorted... No, but it's again. It's not draftsmanship. It's not. Nobody's very super human looking, mm-hmm. and like at certain points, Eleanor arms become a, like little stampy things. I don't know if you noticed it in page nineteen. Yeah, but it's, he still managed to convey a very human emotion in a very un, in a very unrealistic environment, which is all overtly designed, which is amazing, amazing work. Right. Yeah, that's true. Uh, anything else, Sean? Well, the last issue that I read for this week is Black Cloud Number 1 by Jason Latour, Ivan Brandon, and Greg Hinkle from Image. Hmm. A bit of a mixed bag, honestly. Barrett is a girl who can cross from our world to a world of dreams and stories. 
She's using it. It's not the dreaming. It's not the dreaming. We swear. You know, people are guided by stories and it's a dream world, but it's not the dreaming. Cross our heart and swore to die. Don't, don't sue us, Neil Gaiman. It might be the dreaming. I don't know. <laughs> I would not step on those big British toes, but that's me. So Barrett is using this skill to con rich kids by giving them a taste of these fantastic worlds and then pulling them back so that she can basically live off them. It's suggested that the reason she's doing this is because she's originally from the dream world and there's something there that she's afraid of. Unfortunately, Latour never quite gets around to telling us what that might be. Which is kind of the microcosm of my complaint for the entire issue, which is that for an issue... All set up, no payoff. All set up, no payoff. All, not even all set up, because you get to the end and it's still in the process of setting up. Right? There's this thing that Barrett is very, very afraid of. We only know that it is represented by rainfall and by water. We don't know what it means. We don't know why she's scared of it. But she treats it as if it's this terrifying thing. Uh, nobody else does in the dream world. Uh, the dream world is weirdly consistent when she takes different people in. The beginning of the story with this caveman prologue doesn't clarify anything. I, I don't know what the, what that's supposed to be about. And I guess I could be fair and say that that's always a risk when you're doing dream logic, right? The temptation is always to be obscure and unclear and to muddle things up as much as possible because it's all a dream, so it's all fine. But it's also, you know, the art struggling to be as outlandish as the potential is. Right? It's not insane. When you think about the dreaming, you think about like this chaotic, insane landscape with all these stuff going on. Speaking of Sam Keith, of course. Yeah. And here. It's all connected, Sean. Everything is connected, Tom. It all leads back to Marvel because they're dumb. But, um, so, yeah, you know, every, <laughs> wow. everything is connected. We're vindictive today. But they have it coming. They have it coming. They only have themselves to blame. <laughs> if you'd have been there, if you'd have seen yeah. it, I tell you, you would have done the same. So. Yeah, so it does seem to me like an issue that may have gotten caught up in its own ambitions because you don't really get a strong sense of what this dream world means for Barrett specifically. I think the issue starts off by sort of suggesting that the expectations of the people she brings with her manifest there. But on the other hand, the bar that she takes him to is all about her. It's got nothing to do with him. So I don't, like, is she pulling them into her dreams? But if it's her dreams, she doesn't seem to have any control over it because the fights break out. You know, it, it seems very wishy-washy and not, I don't know, I would have preferred a clearer perspective before they got into, like, the dream logic of it all. I, I am fascinated by the, by the people behind this because it says here, in the credit page, story by Jason Latour and Ivan Brandon and script by Ivan Brandon. Mm. And I, the only times I remember a separation between story and script is either when you had the 90s Marvel, somebody came up with an idea for a series and somebody else actually had to do the actual script in. It happened a lot in 90s X-Men comics mm -hmm. or when you do it based on like a toy line or something. So it's story based by the guy who invaded the toys or whatever or some famous name signing up on the, on the top of the page, you know, Neil Gaiman's Techno Mage, actually written by someone else entirely. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm not sure why it's story by Jason Latour and Ivan Brandon and skipped only by Ivan Brandon. Latour might have withdrawn, but the, like if that had happened, people would have heard about it. Um, the art is very lovely. I, I'm, Greg Inkel, I think, is a very good artist overall. He did Airboy and was the best thing about Airboy. Mm. It's not as sharp as Airboy, though. Uh, no. I think it tends to work a lot better in monochrome because the scenes in black and white look a lot better than the scene in color. Well, part of the problem is I don't think that he's crazy enough to do a dreamscape. You know what I mean? The, the mm. implications he, too controlled. You mean? Yeah, everything. Like when you look at the club scene specifically, or when you look at the double page spread afterwards, when she escapes with the rich kid, right? Or when she pulls him back afterwards as part of the trap. You would expect something, even if it's something like Inception, right, with the the upside down cities and all that craziness. Some kind of visual reinforcement of this is all a dream it's all fluid it's all mushy liquid and his art is more and i'm not saying this is like as a negative in itself just like for this particular story in this context it's maybe a little too stable where he it would have yeah, benefited yeah, I, I from agree with that. more more imagination more outlandish stuff more landscape and like in the thing the other people in the city they are either a reflection of her or they're a reflection of him. But either way, you should be able to see that. Like, it's not clear to me. The, the club patron who's, who is harassing, um, Barrett the whole time, he's drawn in color while everything else is black and white. I have no idea who this person is. Right? And the, sto- and he doesn't seem like a projection of her or something that is, that comes from the rich kid. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, because she's also in color in the dream world, I assume it means he's also someone who's able to project himself, who's not from there or is not carried away by someone else's will. Yeah, but you, you have, have to assume can, it because there's no... You have folks who can go to the dream world, you have folks who are off the dream world, and you have people who are like passengers, but can't... They have to be shifted by someone else. I don't think the story demonstrated that clearly enough. I think like more more well, could have been the done. The use of color but for one character... For one set of characters and black and white for others makes sense. And therefore the flood would be some outwardly force coming to change the whole dreamscape. Mm. Which, okay, it makes sense. And it's a decent first issue, but it's not a great one. Uh, It would have worked a lot better in a less busy week, I think. Because as we've said, this week we had Kim Reaper, Rock Candy Mountain, and Eleanor and the Egret, and this one. These are all technically big lunches from big names. Yeah. Or at least had a big enough push in case of uh, Kim Reaper that people noticed it. Mm. So with with all of that, fighting against the Black Cloud is a bit is a bit of the underdog yeah. here. Although and part as, of the problem... as as we mentioned in previous episodes, it has one of those annoyingly generic image titles. Well, the other problem... You could I have think... called it anything. Black Cloud, Cloud Space, Dream Cloud... It's it's unmemorable. It's just an unmemorable memorable name. The other issue I think is that um, I was interested in this title specifically for Latour. Ivan Brandon has been writing Dr- Drifter for um, for Image. Image also, and I've never really enjoyed Drifter. You know, his style is just not for me. So it's possible that he like did the, Vikings, right? I think he did. Yeah, and. You know, I, I'm more of a fan of Jason Latour than I am of Ivan Brandon, so I feel like maybe Latour isn't really here. 
you know? So I don't think that this is for me. I might check the trade if the reviews are good, but I'm not gonna stick with it on a monthly basis. Mm. Same. And since it becomes a co-feature, I think, to end this podcast with Tom Reads 2000 AD, <laughs> uh, I, finally started, I finally started rereading Zenith Yes. Uh, by Garth Ennis and Steve Yawel. They have the whole series collected in four trade paperbacks. I've ordered them and I've read the first one. Now, I am a huge Grant Morrison fan, and the only reason I haven't read it up until now is that, I don't know, I was busy. <laughs> I have no excuse. Uh, I knew about Zenith long before it was published. I actually know all of the plot because I've read Sequart's book about Z- about Zenith and the other early Grant Morrison work when the book was still in publishing Limbo. Mm. So I knew all, all of the story, all of the plot points and everything it was about before I've read it. So my reading experience, I think, is very different than most people. Yeah. And in case you don't know, it's a serial that ran in 2000 AD. Written by Grant Morrison, art by Steve Yowell, though based on design by Brendan McCarthy, and it's important, I'll return to that later. And the idea is that Zenith is a superhero in the 1980s, and because it's a series about the 1980s, he's a very shallow, uh, fame-obsessed young man. He uses his powers mostly to advance his pop career, Mm -hmm. and launch singles, and go to concerts and such. Yeah. And he gets into a bit of a bind, because... As he discovers, there's a race of evil Cthulhu-esque monsters who tried to invade humanity during World War II, and now they're back, using the body of former Nazi superhuman Masterman to invade Earth and kill all of the remaining superheroes. And Zenith sort of has to discover his heroic self and save the world, along with a couple of other older super types. Mm-hmm. Phase one, which again is the only one I've read fully so far, I'm into phase two, I haven't finished it yet, is good, but not great. Yeah. It's it's a well-told story. It's very, it's short enough to be interesting and never become boring. But A, you can see that Grant Merson is so much better in American pacing than in British one. Once he gets from the five-page trips to the 22, 24 pages in stuff like Animal Man, which would only happen, I think, a year later, two years later, he would immediately bounce in quality several levels. And B, Zenith himself is pretty boring and pointless as a protagonist. Yeah. Which, to be fair, is the point. At least, in, at least in the first phase. Again, people told me it improves. Uh... But here is, he's a non-entity. <laughs> There's some, they keep talking about him being... Oh, you're such a shallow guy and you don't do anything. But the story doesn't give him enough focus to be a shallow guy, ironically enough. Yeah, that's actually a big thematic through line across the all four phases is it may be called Zenith, but it's not really about Zenith and Zenith is not the hero of the story. I mean, especially not here. The hero is uh, Mandela and uh, what's her name? Oh, shock something. Yeah, I forget the names. It's it's it's, it's Peter St. John and Ruby yeah. Fox. You know who? They're, they're the heroes of this story. this previous generation. Well, also a uh, Red Dragon. Yes, yes. So you know, yeah, that's part of the joke. I feel like it's like one of Morrison's earliest statements about 
his opinions uh, about like the superhero genre, etc. Is like you know, if if a superhero were an actual celebrity on the level of someone who would turn up on MTV in the 1980s, they would be you know vapid and stupid and self interested and not necessarily act in anyone's best interest other than their own. Not to say that it is, you know, Zenith is a putz, but he's not an asshole. That's where someone like Garth Ennis goes too far. You know what I mean? When they're portraying superheroes as sociopaths. He's not even a a putz for me. He's just a non-entity. I don't get enough of him to to care about him either turning this way or that. He's just boring to me. And the reason I've mentioned uh, Brendan McCarthy is because this character, at least in this concept, is so obviously, I, I don't want to say stolen, let's say homage <laughs> from, uh, let's say homage from McCarthy and Milligan's Paradox, which ran in Revolver, I believe, mm-hmm. a few years earlier, which was also about a, a very shallow guy who's a superhero, mostly for the money and fame. But because Paradox was the hero of his own story and not just one of four four characters that takes place in the back continuity of something else that happened because Morrison is so very interested in the Nazis and their super science and what happens before and what will happen in the future. I actually care about it. But there's also, you know, Paradox didn't survive for whatever reason, either because Revolver was too obscure or it wasn't something that Milligan ever fought to, like, or McCarthy himself, like, fought to bring... Yeah, Milligan and McCarthy pretty much surfed, surfed from one idea to another yeah, in those years. you know. If, if you want to read the complete Milligan and McCarthy collection from Dark Horse, they have about half a dozen series just starting and then stopping because, well, they wanted to do something yeah. else. I will say this much. The overall storyline of Zenith is brilliant. There are going to be a couple of plot twists in Phase 3 and 4 that I'm not going to spoil, but that give you you know it's always fascinating to me to go back and look at creators who are so familiar these days for their shticks and then go back and see how it was when they were just starting to learn those techniques morrison is going to do a couple of things in phase three and in phase four and i think also like towards the end of phase two that will really make you be like oh this is how he learned how to do that this is where he started that process and it's it's one of the best 2080 stories, for my opinion. But I do agree with you that the first phase starts off very slow, doesn't really explain everything. The second phase is it does a little bit more, but three is where it really gets insane. And four was oh. just pff, fantastic. Okay, <laughs> that's something to expect. Yeah. Uh, I'll I'll read the whole thing, and I think we'll talk about it every once in a while whenever I finish a volume. I look forward to it. Episodes. I look forward to it. I I am I am hoping to hear all about your perspective on Phase Three specifically because I think that okay. Phase Three is the one that people who enjoy. Actually, I'm having kind of an epiphany now because I hate multiversity. With a fiery passion, and I don't have time for. I I I love half of my. I know, I know. I care little for third of it, and I hate L- one. The other. Looking the other back bit, on so. it, it may be because phase three is where all of that, all of that multiversity stuff started for Morrison, and he did it so much better back then when it wasn't cliche. That might hmm. be one one point of comparison worth keeping in mind, but you'll see when you get there. 
Okay, and you'll be very glad because after Zenith, I'm planning to start uh, your your favorite, your boy, Nikolai Dante. Oh, that's going to be interesting. I, I've, read, I've read some strips, but I'm going to plan to start the whole thing from the beginning all the way to the yeah, end. Yeah, I think the 2000 AD has collected them in either 10 or 11 t- trades. There's about, there's about 10 trades. Yeah, but be careful. And they're super expensive. Rebellion. Oh, Rebellion needs to... Prices. I don't know. They're not as bad as Marvel, but they are pretty terrible. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't really have any defense for that. It's just like re- rebellions. Uh, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go broke reading 2080. <laughs> I mean, you know, the best kind of broke. They would benefit so much from the the way that Marvel used to do the old Masterworks line. Remember, just like get mm. these 600 page omnibuses, throw a whole bunch of crap in there. But at least if it has to be black and white, let it be black and white. But let it be affordable. You know, give people access to this stuff. They'll buy it if they're interested. There are so many gems in 2000 AD just waiting to be unearthed. Get to it. Okay, so this was another episode of The Small Sport. Uh, If you enjoyed it, previous episodes can be found, of course, on Seekward, Seekward.org. If you want to talk to us, I'm on Twitter at Tom Shops, and Sean is not on Twitter, so just shout really loud. Yeah, or shout at Tom, and I'll just hear it, probably, so. Sign the Sean signal in the sky. Now, Sean, if you had a signal, what would it be like? What would be on the Sean signal? The Sean signal would probably be a loop of David Bowie's Magic Dance, because that song has been stuck in my head all day today. So that would probably be it. Yeah, that's Magic Dance. So this was it, and up until next time... Bon appétit